0: It's Thursday, June sixteenth. Welcome to Market Follery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today, the one and only Morgan Housel. Thanks for being here. How you doing? I'm doing well. Good, despite this gloomy day. You have your Hawaiian shirt on, though, uh, see, which evens out the gloomy day. That's why I picked my Hawaiian shirt. It's all about balance. Exactly. Um, I mentioned this to you earlier this morning. There is not a distraction index. If there were a distraction index, I feel like it would be trending pretty high right now and and possibly going even higher later this year. But I think between just this week alone with the Fed meeting and all of the run-up to the Fed meeting, with the Brexit vote which is coming next week in the UK, and of course the presidential election and the, as we're gearing up for the Conventions next month. I feel like the distraction index for investors is is I don't want to say approaching danger levels, but it's really getting high. It's pretty high, and you know I I would say
1: it's it's always high. I think maybe it's a little higher now. I don't think, but you know, in the last seven years, I think there's a lot that went on that we forget now, and the reason we forget is because it didn't it wasn't worth paying any attention to them in hindsight, even though at the time it seemed like a big deal. You had Greece about to default on its debt. You had a massive banking crisis in Cyprus. We had another presidential presidential election in 2012. All kinds of problems in Europe and China and South America and hyperinflation in Venezuela. There's always things going on in the market. You're probably right that there's more right now, but I think it's important takeaway that the reason that we forget how much happened in the past is because it didn't matter in hindsight. And I think that's the best attitude and thing for investors to remember as they look at how much is going on right now is that it very rarely if ever pays to act
0: on the distractions one of the things that has happened in certainly the last decade when it comes to the federal reserve is there is a greater amount of transparency mm-hmm. largely due to the fed itself making the decision to among other things hold press conferences and 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 that sort of thing do you think that's good? Is it like if you could you know hop in a time machine and Ben Bernanke comes to you and says I'm thinking about doing this because he was the one when he was Fed chief who or, whether, whether or not he, it was his decision alone he certainly signed off on it and my my recollection is that he was the one who broke the news or it was broken in his name. Do you think it's a good thing? Well, I think
1: even the recent history of Fed transparency it's pretty amazing. It wasn't that long ago. I think only 20, 25 years ago. That the Fed didn't even announce when they were raising or lowering interest rates, you had bankers and economists that would have to go and look at the movement in the uh, Fed funds market and the Treasury markets and kind of piece together, reverse engineer, and say, "Hey, I think the Fed just raised interest rates by a quarter percentage points." It wasn't even announced. That wasn't that long ago. So, not okay. Only, that's messed up, right? Well, but that, but that it was like that for, uh, I guess, about eighty years. That's how it worked. And the economy did pretty well during those 80 years. Investors did pretty well over the 80 years. So, you're right that that is an extreme low amount of transparency. And we have just orders of magnitude more today. Has it helped investors? I think it's probably helped some investors, and I think it's probably set others astray was more information and more transparency doesn't mean you'll make better investing decisions. And I think oftentimes it means that you just have more distractions, like we were just talking about, uh, more things to anchor and fuel your confirmation bias on. You know, There have been so many investors over the last seven years that were uh, gold bulls, or sure that uh, hyperinflation was right around the corner. Less so now, but really around 2009-2010, that was a big argument. And a lot of it was driven by the fact that we had all this data showing what the Federal Reserve was doing, blowing up their balance sheet, lowering interest rates to zero percent, making comments that not only were they doing this now, but they had intentions to do it in the future. That didn't exist 20 years ago, and I wonder if if we could go if we had the same situation we had in 2008, 2009, but it instead incurred occurred in 1980, would people have gotten as worried? About hyperinflation and as bullish on gold as they did in 2010? I think the answer is probably not. So that was a case, I think, where transparency led more people astray than it helped people.
0: See, and I alluded to this at the beginning when I said the distraction index may be going higher because I'm thinking about things like yes, the political conventions, which will be next month, but then the month after that, we've got the Summer Olympics. But listening to you now, I'm thinking maybe maybe the Summer Olympics will be a good distraction. You know, maybe it's unless unless the health concerns that
1: are widely known about the games
0: yeah. bear There's, fruit. But in terms, but just like for investors, yeah, as opposed to because the the distractions of all of the coverage of the Fed meeting, all of the coverage of the Brexit vote next week. I'm not saying that's not warranted, but those are tied directly to investing. and If you're looking at the business news and you're thinking about whether or not to buy or sell shares of a particular company, you are bombarded with those things. Whereas, in the case of the Summer Olympics, that might be a a reason to turn away from business news. I think there's a paradox that needs to be uh,
1: noted here, and that is, in terms of politics, transparency is so important to build trust for your government, trust for your politicians. Almost nothing is more important. As an investor, there's A good argument to make that being blissfully unaware is a good mindset. Because the more information, especially information about things like central banking, where unless you have a PhD in economics or really follow this as part of your job, a lot of people don't have a good grasp of how the mechanics of central banking work. Then, the more information that you flood into your head, I think the higher the odds that you're going to do something wrong, and that's where being blissfully unaware becomes pretty important. but it's hard to balance that with the need of trusting your government, which requires more transparency.
0: The most recent thing you've written is entitled "What I Learned Buying a House." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and for anyone who's listening right now who's actually bought a house they're just they're smiling and nodding as I am like, "Oh yeah, I. Remember. You remember, <laughs> you remember uh, wh- what are a couple of things you've learned?
1: Well, the first thing I'd say is I've spent years writing about the downsides of home Um My wife and I rented until, you know just recently we just bought a house last week. And renting, I think, was the single best financial decision that we made because it led us, bounce around from job op- to to towards ba- job opportunities and school opportunities without any hesitation or hassle when we needed to pack up and move. And in 7 years we lived in 5 cities in 4 states on each side of the country. And most of those moves were work and school related. So and if we were tied down to a house we wouldn't have been able to grasp those opportunities. But we're at a point now we have an 8-month old son we're you know we're settled in where we want to live and what we want to do so it was time to buy a house. And a, a few of the things that I learned. Well, one is that, and I sort of knew this beforehand, but it's just reiterated now, is that buying a house is an emotional decision. And you shouldn't pretend otherwise. A, a house is not like buying a lawnmower or buying a new barbecue. A house is where you're going to spend, you're going to have the most memories with your family and with your kids. And that's inherently something that breeds emotion. And when my wife first pulled up to the house to tour it, and we first would, she gasped and said, Oh, I love it. And I knew <laughs> before, before I, you even before went, inside. We went inside. And I knew at that moment like, this was not well, going to be an analytical decision. And I think that's okay as long as you accept it. And it just drove home the point to me that buying a house is not something you do to maximize your return on investment, it's something that you do to provide stability and a quality of life for your family. And I, I wrote in the article I think buying a house is a lot more like picking a spouse than picking a stock. It's not something that you should look at and crunch the numbers and say, "Is this is this a good use for my money?" Because a, it's probably not going to be, but b, that's not why you're doing it. You're doing it to provide stability for your for your family, and that's an emotion. So you know, the house that we bought, we really like, and it's well within our budget. So everything, you know, we didn't make any any dumb decisions here. But I I was I was. surprised I think at how much emotion was involved in the process the night before our bid was accepted I asked my wife I said what happens what happens if we lose this house and she said I'll be devastated wow. and, and, and I said and, and I said me too I'll feel the same and I know that is the worst frame of mind to be in before you make the biggest financial purchase of your life but that's that's what it was. That was the reality of our situation, and I think owning that is an important step in the process.
0: How many roughly, how many houses did you look at before you saw this one? Roughly, approximately no others. Oh! <laughs> wow! <laughs> and by roughly,
1: I mean exactly no others. Well, that's, that's not totally true, because we looked six months ago, we looked at a bunch of homes, and then we stopped, and, we just, and then we started up again. And the first house we saw, we just went, this is it, this is, this is the one we own. And, and I guess you could say we looked at hundreds of others online but that, that doesn't really count. So, we had a good sense of what ho- what you could get for certain prices in the neighborhood that we liked, and we saw this one, and it was just, boom, done. The neighborhood that, we're, that, we're, that we found in has a lot of a, 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 it's a weird mix of uh, high-end homes that were out of our budget and low-end homes that were below our budget, very little in between. So, when one popped up that was right in our budget, it's pretty rare for this area, so we, we took it.
0: I will just say to you what uh, the inspect the home inspector said to me nearly twenty years ago when we bought our home and which was good luck, kid. <laughs> you're not far off. <laughs> uh, when he was all done, I said. Uh, he said, "Is this your first home?" I said, "Yes." He said, "I said, do you have any advice for a first time homeowner?" And he thought for a second. He said, "Well, the only thing I'll say is it never ends." Yeah. And I said. What never ends and he said it never ends there's always something there's always going to be something that you want to change there's always going to be something that breaks and needs to be changed there's always going to be something that that your spouse says I don't like this and you will need to change and just in the you know embrace that you know, understand we, that and embrace it as we were looking for homes one of our prerequisites was we don't want to
1: do any remodeling we, we want a turnkey home we realize those cost more but we don't it's too much of a hassle. We have an eight month old son. We don't want to remodel. Uh, and now we are uh, going to blow up half the house. <laughs> so that's. And I remember I was talking to my dad about this. The house that we grew up in, when we moved in, the house was 10 years old. And I was telling my dad, every weekend, all I remember him doing was fixing stuff. And he said, yeah, that's pretty much right. You know, a home that's more than 10 years old is a constant project.
0: So, are, are you handy around the house? No. You don't have those no, skills? No. I work on a keyboard, not with a hammer. <laughs> you're going to you're gonna have to up your game just a little. Well, maybe. Just a little. Uh, a couple of housekeeping notes. Uh, first, uh, last, I think it was last week. Yeah, last week, uh, Aaron Bush, David Kretzman, and I were talking about Amazon's $3 billion investment in their operations in India. And I put the request out to listeners in India. And holy cow, we have the best listeners. We truly have the best listeners because uh, for an, any number of reasons, and it's not just that uh, some of them send emails with uh, burger recommendations around the country, or every once in a while someone will show up here with with a bottle of bourbon. Although we appreciate that, although <laughs> let's let's not discount those. Um, got half a dozen e- emails, just very detailed, from listeners in India about the e-commerce landscape. Uh, going into great detail, not only about their own experiences, about uh, but also about uh, what these different companies uh, like Flipkart and Snapdeal are going through. So, I just wanted to take a moment and thank uh, Adi Kar, Brajesh Mishra, Sunu Sachdeva, Prayag Irya. Uh, I'm butchering all of these names. It's terrible, you're, and you're I'm doing, sorry.
1: You're, you're doing a good job. Uh,
0: v. Srikar and Srikant Mancharaju. Wow, I really did butcher all of those names, so I apologize. But just know, as badly as I butchered those names, that's how grateful I am uh, to the research that you all provided. Uh, And thank you, while I'm in the business of thanking, thanks to Austin Morgan, who is the man behind the glass this week and for much of last week, pulling double duty producing not just industry focus, but market foolery as well, while our man Dan Boyd is in France. And other than a photo he tweeted out, I think on his first day in Paris, not a word from Dan. Not a word from Dan. So I don't know if we have listeners in Paris uh, who have spotted Dan. I don't know if Dan has just have a, had a life alter. Who knows? Come Monday, he might. He might. He might not come back. That's well. Good thing we have Austin. It's a good thing we have Austin. And I know you in particular won't be sad if if Dan just decides to stay in Paris.
1: Well, that's. <laughs> That's a
0: different story. That's a that's a whole. You know what? That deserves its own episode. (laughs) The the longstanding. We
1: should do. We should do an episode with just Dan and I. Dan can host it and have me, and Dan and I can can just go back
0: and And forth. And in the more than one thousand episodes of Market Foolery that we've ever done, that will that episode will need to have the explicit designation on iTunes, where it's like this. Viewer discretion is advised. Yeah, listener discretion. There's going to be a lot of bad language if Dan Boyd is hosting and you're the guest. The
1: short explanation. Dan and I are friends, uh, but we have only shared insults with
0: each other during the entire friendship. (laughs) That that kind of friends. Um, Last order of business, uh, later this month, June 28th, the Gerald Loeb Awards are being held in New York City. I believe I've mentioned this on here, I know I mentioned it uh, recently on Motley Fool Money. For the second time in four years, you are one of the finalists in the personal finance category fingers crossed um, so congratulations uh, for that have you written an acceptance speech no but i need to even though and that's i
1: think that's the hard thing you have a you know a, the, the odds are that you will not win but if you do you don't want to look like a fool on stage so you have to write small a small sp- f fool right so you have to look like you so you have to spend time writing a speech that you will almost certainly not give
0: on other podcasts that I've listened to recently, uh, th- this topic has come up. The, the topic being winning an award, giving an acceptance speech, and invariably forgetting someone unbelievably important. And in, and in the case of uh, one actor I heard uh, recently on a podcast, it was his wife yeah. that he forgot to thank for an Emmy award. So I will just I, I will thank nobody and make sure that I
1: don't. Or I'll, I'll just say thank you everybody. Does that work? Is that the safe route? Let me ask you a question.
0: Um,
1: How about I only float, thank Dan Boyd?
0: Float, float that idea with your lovely wife. Okay. And just <laughs> say, honey, if I get up there and say thank you, everyone, are you going to feel like you're covered in that? Thank thank you to my wife and Dan Boyd. <laughs> We'll leave it at that. Uh, it's just going to raise more questions than, uh, <laughs> than I think you want. Uh, good luck. Thanks. Thanks for being here. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, in The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Fully. The show is mixed by superhuman, metahuman, Austin Morgan. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday.